space in front and a mat in Buddha surrounded by all the other Buddhas and Bodhisattvas they're made of light and really try and feel like you're sitting in the presence of a lot of holy beings Surrounded by all sentient beings. Our mother on our left, our father on our right. The people we don't get along with in front of us. Everybody else around us. And we're all looking to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha for spiritual direction, for refuge. we say the different verses, then contemplate the meaning and think that you're leading all other living beings imagined around you in generating those same thoughts and feelings. I take refuge in the Buddha's Dharma and the Sangha. By the merit I create, by engaging in generosity, and the other far-reaching practices, may I attain Buddhahood in order to benefit all sentient beings. I take refuge until I have awakened in the Buddha's the Dharma and the Sangha. By the merit I create, by engaging in generosity. And the other far-reaching practices, may I attain Buddhahood in order to benefit all sentient beings. I take refuge until I have awakened in the Buddha's, the Dharma, and the Sangha. By the merit I create, by engaging in generosity. And the other far-reaching practices, may I Buddha in order to benefit all sentient beings. May all 
gods and to beings have happiness and its causes. May all sentient beings be free of suffering and its causes. May all sentient beings not be separated from sorrowless bliss. May all sentient beings abide in equanimity, free of bias, attachment, and anger. Reverently, I prostrate with my body, speech, and mind, and present clouds of every type of offering, actual and mentally transformed. I confess all my destructive actions accumulated since beginning this time, and rejoice in the virtues of all holy and ordinary beings. Please remain until cyclic existence ends, and turn the wheel of dharma for sentient beings. I dedicate all the virtues of myself and others to the Great Awakening. This ground anointed with perfume, flowers Mahamuniya Soha 
to your motivation to be free of psychic existence to make your life meaningful by benefiting other sentient beings and by fulfilling all of our potential, actualizing our potential so that we can be of the greatest benefit to other living beings. Last week we um, finished the section about uh, how to cultivate serenity or shamatha, uh, the mind that can stay fixed on a virtuous object as long as we want without uh, succumbing to either laxity or excitement. And a mind that is imbued with uh, pliancy, so that both the body and mind are very flexible and can be applied to anything we want. So that was the topic of last week. This week, we're going to talk about insight, vipassana. Um, yeah, which is a word that's not so well understood in America. Because uh, in, in the U.S., vipassana has become the name of a Buddhist tradition when actually it's the name of a meditation technique that is found in many Buddhist traditions. Okay, so it's a little bit confusing, uh, but we're going to be talking about what Vipassana is in the Tibetan tradition. So this has to do with um, realizing the ultimate nature of reality, how things really exist, not how they appear to exist, but what their actual mode of existence is. And uh, before I, I get into the text itself, mm, you know, it's helpful to, to know some words. So uh, when we talk about the ultimate no mode of existence of phenomena, um, we say that they're empty of true existence, empty of inherent existence. Okay, so emptiness, you know, is a key word here, but what emptiness means, like the emptiness of inherent existence, means the absence of inherent existence. It doesn't mean that things are totally non-existent. It just means that we have projected inherent existence onto things. They don't have that mode of existence. They are empty of that mode of existence. Okay, so that's that's what it means, you know. Um, and so, what is inherent existence or true existence? Existence from its own side. All these words basically mean the same. It's uh, talking about a way of existence that is independent of other factors. Okay, so something being existing, independent of other things. So 
you know, we feel like we're independent people, right? You know, here I am. I'm me. I'm an independent person. Right? Yeah. Are we really independent? Yeah. When, when you look, we're, we're not so independent. Uh, first of all, we depend on other people for food, clothing, shelter, medicine. Don't we? Yeah. And then uh, not only do we depend on other people, but just to say the word I, we have to depend on our body and mind. Okay? And we depend on causes. We didn't appear miraculously, causelessly. So we depend on causes. We have components, our body and mind. And then, you know, we also have our exist by, uh, in terms of terms and concepts. So on the basis of our body and mind, somebody, you know, looks and says, oh, there's a person there, and her name is Harriet, or his name is Melvin, you know? So people exist by being labeled. They depend on conceptuality, okay? But even though things are dependent in that way, we tend to think of ourselves as independent entities and tend to think that anything we see around us also exists independently with its own essence. Okay, so this is our fundamental ignorance that we, you know, we think, oh, there's a real cop out there. Yeah, and a real computer here and a real gong there, and I have real problems, and I have a real boyfriend or girlfriend, or I don't have a real boyfriend or girlfriend, you know? Everything seems very real and concrete to us, when in actual fact things exist dependent on other stuff, on other things. So, you know, if we look at at dependency, um, we can really learn a lot. It can help clarify our mind. Uh, So let me give just some very simple examples of dependency so you can see why it's important to see that things exist in a dependent manner and they don't exist independently. Um, Take manners, for example. Okay? So each culture has uh, its own ideas about what is polite, you know, what is good etiquette and what is rude. Yeah. When we are in, you know, we, we grew up in this Western culture, so we have an idea of what good manners are, and we think everybody in the world should follow those same good manners. We don't realize that those manners have been developed by people's conceptuality, but we think that everybody, that manners are fixed and solid, so everybody should follow the same code of etiquette, and if they don't, they're rude. Right? 
and will get very judgmental of people who are rude. So it's very interesting when you go to uh, Tibetan culture because some of the things that mm, we take for granted uh, as being polite, they consider rude and vice versa. Okay? So, for example, in Western culture, when you like something, you applaud, right? We, we clap. In Tibetan culture, yeah, you clap to scare away the ghosts. Yeah. So when the British uh, army got into Tibet in around, was it 1908, something around there, and they were walking through the streets and the Tibetans were clapping, the, the Brits thought, oh, they like us. And actually, the Tibetans were trying to chase them away. They thought they were demons. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> yeah? What is it with the tongue out? Like they, they really... Yeah. So, in our culture, it's very impolite to stick your tongue out. You know, I, I mean, really, that, that's not good form. You don't go to a, you know, to a debutante ball and, <laughs> or even for a job interview. <laughs> In Tibetan culture, that's considered very polite because it means that you aren't saying any kind of uh, mantras or spells to inflict harm on the other person. Yeah, it shows that your tongue is clean. Yeah. Um, in in uh, Tibetan culture, yeah, to when you have to sneeze or blow your nose just to go akshu or to take a tissue and blow your nose, that is considered extremely rude. Yeah. The way you blow your nose is you take your robe and put it over your robe. <laughs> then you blow your nose. <laughs> then you go like this. And that is considered polite. Okay. So, you know, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because when we think of manners, we think of them as being very solid and concrete, universally applicable. And they're not. You know, the meaning of certain gestures means different things in, in different cultures. Yeah, they're dependent on the culture. They're dependent on the meaning that people impute on them. Okay? So not realizing this, we can uh, get in some, uh, some trouble sometimes. I mean, you see this if you go traveling to India. Yeah. What is accept, considered acceptable dress for a woman in, in the West is considered really risque in India. And you're, you know, dare I say, asking for trouble. Yeah. Um, but people don't realize that. They think, well, what my culture does, everybody should follow. And that's not necessarily the case. Okay, so these are some 
good examples about how things depend on conception. Yeah. That they, they don't exist inherently as either polite or rude, as proper dress or improper dress. Okay? Depends on the minds of the people. Okay, so, uh, you know, if we remember dependency, it, it can help us in many, many ways. Because, yeah? for example, if you're having problems with somebody, yeah, um, often what we think the issue is, is not what the other party thinks the issue is. Okay, but again, you know, if we're grasping things as independently existent, well, I think we're fighting over X. Then I talk to that other person as if X were their concern too. But in their mind, they're not fighting over X, they're fighting over M. And I'm not even realizing it. So we're fighting over two different things. No wonder we don't get along. So we have to, you know, step back and see how things depend, and then that can really help us. Last night I spoke a little bit about country borders, you know, and how dependent they are. And I remember one time when I was leading a retreat in the Negev Desert in a kibbutz, the kibbutz was right on the border with Jordan. It had the fence, and then it had some raked sand. And then it, you know, had another little border and then Jordan. The raked sand was in case anybody, you know, tried to cross over into Israel, they would have to step there and you could see their footprints. Okay. So I would stand right there on the on the border, you know. With a with the fence, and look at that sand, and look at this sand on the two sides of the fence. You know, and you know they're both sand. That's it. And yet, people will fight a war over the label you put on that sand. Is that sand this country, or is that sand that country? Is it yours, or is it mine? Yeah? Another, uh, you know, kind of thing to show how we get into fixed ways of thinking is you grow up in the West, and so you think democracy is the best way, right? Then we all grow up, democracy. Yeah, democracy is absolutely positively the best way. Everybody should be democratic. Yeah. And then I went and I lived in Tibetan culture, and they don't want democracy. Yeah. His Holiness, it's so interesting, it's the only country where the leader wants less power and wants to have more democracy. And the people don't want democracy, they want the leader to have more power. <laughs> yeah. 
But one of our problems in the U.S. in terms of our foreign policy is we think democracy is inherently good for everybody, independent of culture, circumstances, economics, and everything else. Yeah. Well, we should have realized by now that that's not true. Yeah. That to have democracy, you need certain things going on in the society first. And if you don't have those things going on, democracy, you know, turns into corruption, exploitation, and chaos, not into the best thing for everybody. Okay? So, you know, just this process of thing, seeing how things depend on other things, yeah, they aren't self-contained units of stuff that can you can pick up and move somewhere else and they're, they're going to have the same function and the same meaning. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can see sometimes how, uh, you know, I was saying that things depend on being conceived and being labeled, but uh, we often forget that we're the ones that label things, that gave things their label. And instead, we think that they have the meaning of the label in them, that they have some essence that really is that thing. Yeah. And that then we react very strongly to different labels. Okay. So, you know, if you, uh, you know, before, let's say, we had, we uh, had the label AIDS or HIV, yeah, you could say that word, make that sound, and AIDS, everybody would say, oh, that's what you do to help people. Yeah, you <laughs> AIDS, yeah, that's what AIDS is. Um, or we, we would see a certain collection of symptoms and, you know, not even call it a disease, yeah, sometimes. I mean, it's quite interesting, you know, when you hear the name of a disease, the disease seems so real, but actually all that's there is a collection of symptoms. And on the basis of those symptoms, we give it a name. But then, often when we hear the name, we're like frightened to death, not realizing that the name is just a shortcut for that collection of symbol of symptoms. Yeah. So if you know somebody um, maybe told you uh, instead of saying the name of the disease they gave you a description of the disease, you might not get so frightened. But when you hear the name, because we've made it very concrete, that, you know, becomes terrifying. Okay, so 
just a little bit here, you know, about how things depend on labeling, how they depend on parts, how they depend on causes. You know? And when we think of ourselves, uh, like I said before, we don't usually think of ourselves as dependent beings. Yeah, We feel like there's a real person here. Like, do you, you know, when you just sit and, you know, look at your feeling of self, do you feel like you exist simply because the causes of you exist? No. You know, we don't think, oh, I exist just because the causes of me exist. We don't feel that at all. Yeah. Because that kind of implies if the causes for me didn't exist, I wouldn't be here. But I'm here, and I'm real, and I'm permanent, and I don't change, and I'm always existing. And I'm this unique individual. That's the way we feel, isn't it? You don't feel like, oh, I exist just because the causes for me exist. Mm-hmm. No, we are real. Very real. And when we think of different people in relationship to us, those people seem real too. And we put all sorts of meaning on relationships, you know? You are my mother, you are my father. Oh my goodness, there's a whole job description that's 25 pages long that follows that term, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, think when you say my mother, all the expectations you have of what a mother should be or what a father should be. We think that that's what they should be, and you know, when they aren't, then we get upset. Or we have a good friend, and again, and our you know, best friend, or my partner, or my spouse, and we have a whole job description. If you are my best friend, then this and this and this and this and this better pertain. And if you're my boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, whatever, then this and this and this and this bit, you know, pertain. And we expect that, you know, we have, well, we have these expectations, and we assume that the other person has the same expectations. We never bother to ask them. We just assume Because the word, you know, we have our definition of the word. We assume everybody has the same definition. And then your parents or boyfriend, girlfriend, best friend, whoever it is, doesn't act according to your job description. And you get upset. Because we thought, okay, this relationship is cast in concrete. You should always behave towards me with according to such and such and such and such. 
Danielle. The relationship isn't cast in concrete. Yeah, the other person doesn't know our expectations. We don't know all of their expectations either. Yeah, but we hold these things very strongly, especially if there's a label that's describing our relationship with them. Then we assume that they better act in a certain way. And if they don't, So it's interesting to think about sometimes, you know, select different words that describe relationships and think of what your definition is and how you relate to that word and, you know, do other people have that same definition? And could the fact that you have different definitions, because the word is simply a word, and the concept is simply a concept. It has no inherent meaning. Yeah. Could that have anything to do with the disagreement that we're experiencing? So it's so, so interesting, you know. This grain of sand. Is this grain of sand Jordan? Or is this grain of sand Israel? And what happened? If the grain of sand got stuck in my, my pant cuffs and I brought it back into the States, then does it become American? <laughs> yeah? It's interesting, isn't it? Oh, another excellent example of imputation. The dear Confederate flag. Yeah? There's, yeah. When you look at it, all that flag is, is, you know, cotton or polyester, whatever they make out of it, you know, make it out of And it's colors. That's all it is. You know, it's red, white, and blue. But boy, does that flag have a lot of meaning to it. Mm -hmm. And we see how different people impute different things to the configuration of red, white, and blue on that piece of cloth. Yeah, they impute very different meanings. The red, white, and blue and the cloth from its side does not have any meaning. Yeah, from the side of the cloth, there's no meaning in it. It has meaning because we impute meaning. Okay? And different people imputed different meanings on this cloth. Or at least they thought they did. I don't know. And so the, that piece of cloth became a point of contention because of the meanings that we imputed on it. 
but from the side of the cloth, actually, none of those meanings are there. It's interesting, isn't it? I must say I'm very glad they took it down. Yeah, extremely glad they took it down. Because you still have to function in conventional society where certain assembly of parts have certain meaning. So you have to still function in that, that conventional way. But at the same time knowing that actually there's nothing from the side of the cloth. When I was uh, young, in the days of the dinosaurs, um, you know, we, uh, many people burn the American flag. And whoa, you know, the controversy over the Confederate flag was nothing compared to people burning the American flag. I mean, people were going berserky when, you know, people protesting the Vietnam War would burn the flag. Yeah. And it's interesting, it took all the way until 1989 for it to become legal to burn the flag. You know, all that time during the 60s and 70s that people were burning flags and getting arrested for it. Yeah. Because the flag represented something that many people did not feel comfortable with. And then some people's mind says, if you're harming the symbol, you are harming me. Yeah. And I respect this symbol, you know. I am a patriotic American. So if you burn the flag, you are, you know, you're desecrating a holy object. Yeah. Again, it's just a piece of cloth. But people impute meaning on that cloth. And especially if you have somebody from the armed services who went through, you know, risking their life, they impute a certain meaning on that cloth that other people don't. And they become very sensitive to it. Yeah. So quite interesting, uh, you know, how symbols and become so, uh, oh, they can become a really big deal, can't they? I've always wondered how you can pledge allegiance to a flag. <laughs> you know, since I was a kid, it's like, what do you, how can, you, I mean, isn't your allegiance to a principle or to a group of people? You know, I mean, to me, when I think of allegiance or loyalty, it's to, you know, yeah, it's to a principle or a group of people. I'm, but a piece of cloth, you know? I, I always wondered how that, you know, why it was worded that way. Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Yeah. Yeah. But under God. Yeah. 
But it doesn't say I pledge I pledge allegiance to the things that's you know stands. You're pledging allegiance to the flag. Yeah, but it says what it stands for. Too. Yeah, but what it stands for, we don't have. <laughs> Do we have liberty and justice for all in this country? The same DAs and the same judges that are. The statistics yeah. are really scary. Yeah. Person Liberty and justice for all? Huh? Sounds good, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it were true. And then under God, what's that mean? This is a country. That where you have a separation of you know church and state, so how can you say under God in the pledge of allegiance that that's completely contradicting what you say you stand for? <laughs> yeah, and then on money under God, well, yeah, money is holy. <laughs> Money is the meaning of life, of course, it's under God. Oh, it's just curious to me how we use words and, and the meanings that we give the words. It's indivisible. Yeah, indivisible. You know, but they lost the civil war. <laughs> and somehow, I don't know, that, that doesn't seem to have been fully accepted in the South. <laughs> And actually, there's people in Texas that say they, they never joined the union. <laughs> actually, I would be just as happy as Texas. <laughs> there's all these white supremacists that want to live. You know, let them go live in Texas. And <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you don't agree? <laughs> I'm joking. Well, <laughs> uh oh, you better cut this part out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the FBI is probably watching. Uh, and I'm sure they have a file on me from the Vietnam War. So. <laughs> yeah, big brother. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so maybe I should uh, read from the text. <laughs> yeah. back on no, but it's interesting, isn't it? To really kind of question these different things that we take for granted. And, um, you know, what do they mean? And what, you know, yeah, what do they really mean? What do we really believe? All men are created equal. Yeah, as long as you're white. As long as you're a man or male. Yeah, well, there's something specific about all men are created equal. They were very specific about leaving us out. But they, they needed to say all white men are created equal. Yeah, that's what they meant. They meant rich white men. 
So let's get back to the text here. Okay, so um, we're on the section. It's how to train in inside of the Vipassana. So it has what to do in the actual meditation session, in between sessions, in the preliminaries. It, um, I mean, in the sessions, it has the preliminaries, the actual meditation, and the conclusion. Okay, so it says um, the preliminaries are explained in the context of serenity. More specifically, while correctly relying on a learned spiritual mentor, receive instructions on insight, ardently request the mentors inseparable from the deity, strive to purify negativities and accumulate virtue, and so on. Combining the three is the indispensable prerequisite to the realization of uh, views. So the three there means purification, accumulation of merit, and making requests to our spiritual mentor, seeing them as inseparable from the deity. Okay, and then the actual meditation session has two parts. How to meditate uh, once the selflessness of persons is established, and how to meditate once the selflessness of phenomena is established. Okay, so we have to talk about this word self, selfless or selflessness. It doesn't mean, selfless doesn't mean what that word means in uh, regular English. We usually think of selfless meaning somebody who is uh, very benevolent, who doesn't think about themselves. They're selfless and so they, they take care of others. That's not the meaning of selfless here. Okay, here, okay, when we're talking about the nature of reality, the term self, yeah, it can have two meanings. Sometimes the word self means the person. Yeah, you, me, you know, we're selves. Yeah. The other meaning of self means inherent existence which is the object of negation. In other words, the type of existence that we think exists that does not exist. So when we have this, we project this false way of existence on persons, we call it the self of person. When it's persons, when we project it onto other phenomena, 
we call it the self of phenomena. When we negate that inherent existence, exists on persons, we call that the selflessness of persons. And when we negate inherent existence on phenomena, we call that the selflessness of phenomena. Okay? So in self of persons, selflessness of persons, in both those terms, self means inherent existence, the type of existence that doesn't exist. Okay? That we're so familiar with that we can't even identify it. Yeah, that's how difficult it is. Okay. So although in his discourses the conqueror, in other words the Buddha, taught innumerable logical reasonings to establish selflessness, since ascertaining it through the four key points is easier for beginners, the way to do so is as follows. And now he's going to explain this way of meditating on the selflessness of persons according to these four points. Okay. So he starts out the thought, me, me. Okay, you got that thought? Me, me. Okay. <laughs> right? I mean, this is sometimes what's screaming in, inside of our heads, isn't it? What about me? I have something that, you know, needs to be listened to. I have something to say. You have to take my feelings into consideration. Yeah, right? I mean, me is a very potent word. Yeah. Mine is even more, is very potent also. Let me go off on a little abs- uh, diversion here about mine. Or my, two letters, my. It sounds like a very harmless word, doesn't it? My. There's nothing to that word, my. But as soon as we put that label, my, on some object or person, its whole meaning and relationship to us totally transforms. Okay? So, You go into an Apple store. Yeah, the Apple computer store. (laughs) The other Apple store. Um, And here's this beautiful computer that you really long for, that can do all these functions that you want to do and can make movies and all this far out stuff. Okay? So when you look at that computer, you know, it's like, I want this. But if, while you're in the store, somebody knocks it off the, the uh, table and it crashes and, you know, something breaks in it, well, that's too bad, but, you know, it's, it's not a big deal for you, is it? Yeah. But if you uh, go into that store, and you trade a pe- you give somebody a piece of plastic and they give you the computer. <laughs> yeah, which is a really good deal, isn't it? <laughs> a piece of plastic and they give you a computer? I mean, a piece of plastic is like, 
you know, not very useful. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah? And your computer is much more useful than a piece of cloth. Or you give them paper. Oh, you give them some pieces of paper and they give you a computer. Again, it's a good deal. I mean, just this piece, pieces of paper. So, you know, you, you trade the plastic or the paper. You got the computer. You bring it home. Yeah. And you're turning around because you're so happy you have the computer and you accidentally go whack and the computer goes flying and lands on the floor. Okay. Now, it's the same computer. Yeah. I mean, well, hopefully not exactly the same <laughs> as the one that got knocked down. <laughs> you know? But the same model. Yeah. As the one that fell on the floor in the shop. That you weren't upset about at all. But when it falls on the, after you've traded the plastic for the computer, when it falls on the floor, you're really upset. I mean, really upset, aren't you? Especially if it's the first day you brought it home. Yeah. And why? Why are we so upset? Because there's the label my that has now been affixed to that computer. When it was in the shop, there was not the label my at home. My, my, my computer is on the floor. What? <laughs> you know, it's like this is a big deal. And yet, it's basically the same thing that was in the store, wasn't it? So as soon as we attach the word my to something, all sorts of stuff happens, you know, especially with people, yeah. You label my boyfriend or my girlfriend, you know, how, who that person is, everything about them changes once you put that label on them. Yeah, it's just my one syllable. But as soon as you my boyfriend, my girlfriend, then, you know, you have to, you know, you better love me and you better tell me you love me and you better encourage me and buy me presents and remember my birthday and do what I want you to do and come home for family dinners on Sunday. Even if you don't like them, you better like them. And, you know, you should like the same things I like and be interested in the same things I'm interested in. And when I want to be serious, you should be serious. When I want to be funny, you should be funny. You know, when I want you to cheer me up, you should cheer me up. You know, when I want you to feel like you know, studying about uh, the War of 1812, you should feel about, you should feel like studying in the War of late 1812. When I want you to feel like, you know, growing bonsai plants, then you should, you know, want to grow bonsai trees. In fact, you should do everything I want you to do. That's the simple thing that happens after you get that adjective called my. True or not true? Yeah? 
is just one word, but look what that word does. It makes someone who was just, you know, Joe Blow, that you wouldn't even notice, or Josephine Blow, that you wouldn't notice, into somebody really important. Interesting. The word my. Yeah. And me too. You know, just the name me. So, has so much meaning. If, if somebody, you know, walks into this room and, you know, criticizes Semke and says, you're an idiot, you're this, you're that. Now look at you. <laughs> it's like, and some kid's getting upset, but it's like, Tim okay, look, chill out, doesn't matter. Somebody walks into the room, and instead of looking at her, looks at me and says the exact same words. We have a problem. <laughs> yeah. You just broke one of the rules of the universe, which is, you criticize me. Yeah. No one is allowed to criticize me. Okay? So me, you're criticizing me. You criticize her, not a problem. Yeah. But if you criticize me, big problem. Okay, so just a small word, a small change in concept regarding somebody, and, you know, a huge change in behavior and in feeling. Okay, so we're going to kind of start looking at what is this me? What is this my? What is this person that owns things? What is this person to start with that we, you know, are so attached to and so focused on? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the thought, me, me, that your mind tightly apprehends from the depths of your heart, even when sunk in a deep sleep, is the innate apprehension of self. Okay, so we're grasping yeah, this self, this inherently existent person. And this is the innate grasping. And the innate grasping has been with us since beginningless time. Yeah, it goes from life to life automatically. No passport required. Yeah. When someone accuses you falsely of making a mistake that you have not made, you think, I didn't make that mistake, yet I am being accused of it. Then a strong apprehension or a strong grasping of I appears from deep within you, and the way the innate grasping at self apprehends the eye is clear. OK? 
Okay? So here what we're trying to do is see how this innate self-grasping apprehends the I. And an example to help us see that is when we're accused of doing something we didn't do. Because yeah. a big sense of I comes up at that time, doesn't it? Yeah. Or maybe we're being discriminated against. You know, again, big sense of I comes up, or criticized, big sense of I, okay? That is the time for a small part of your mind to examine the I that the mind grasps and how it grasps it, okay? So what you want to do at this time, because we have to, the first point in these four points, is to see the object of negation. So here it means see how the, the object of this innate eye grasping appears to us, you know, to really understand how it appears. Yeah. If the analytical, uh, this is the time for a small part of your mind to examine the eye that, gra- that the mind grasps and how it grasps, grasps If the analytical mind is too strong, the former perception will disappear, and and as there will be nothing left to examine, you will not succeed. Hence, the major part of the mind should consistently produce the awareness of the I, and only a small portion of it examines it. Okay? So here we want to really see, you know, what is this feeling of I that I am so sure I am that exists. So to get some kind of clear sense or feeling of what it is, you have to call it up by remembering a time when you were, you know, accused of something you didn't do. Have that feeling strong in your mind. And then one little small part of your mind observe how the eye appears. If you make that small part too big, then how the eye appears, it hides. It hides somewhere in the body and mind. Yeah, so you can't see it clearly. So you have to, you know, have more the attention on the eye, and just a little bit watching how the the eye appears. If the analytical mind is too strong, the former perception will disappear and there will be nothing left to examine and you will not succeed. Hence, the major part of the mind should consistently produce the awareness of the eye and only a small portion of the mind should examine it. When you analyze the matter, the basis on which the innate apprehension of the I grasps the I are the five aggregates, the body and mind, and nothing else. Okay, so the five aggregates. Aggregate means heap or collection, and so what the person uh, when we designate person, yeah, it's being designated independence on a body and mind. And the body and mind are 
consist of five heaps, okay, For, or aggregates. So one aggregate is the form aggregate, that means the body, this thing, okay. Then the other four aggregates are mental aggregates. They're not things you can see. They're not made of atoms and molecules. So the second aggregate is called feelings, and that is happy, um, happy feelings, uh, painful feelings, neutral feelings, or pleasant, painful, and neutral feelings. Okay. Then the third aggregate, the second, which is the second mental aggregate, called discrimination, and that's the part of the mind that can tell the difference between one thing and another. Okay. The fourth aggregate, um, the literal translation is like conditioned factors. Sometimes we call it um, volitional factors. What it means is all sorts of different mental factors, different attitudes, views, emotions that we have. It's kind of a grab bag for everything that's not the other three mental factors. Uh, 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 mental uh, aggregates. And then the last mental aggregates is called primary consciousness. And there's six kind of primary consciousnesses. And these are what the, perceive the different kind of objects. So we have visual, auditory, olfactory, gustatory, tactile, and mental consciousness. Okay? And so they all have their own specific objects. So when we, to, to um, on the, put it this way, on the basis of the collection of these five aggregates, form, feeling, discrimination, volitional factors, and consciousness, then the mind conceives person. Yeah. So person <coughs> comes into being yeah, by being merely designated independence on these five psychophysical aggregates. So that means that the person, the I, the me, has a relationship with the aggregates. Yeah, because we don't just designate me on the basis of empty space. Yeah. We designate me or I on the basis of the aggregates. Okay, so when you anal analyze the matter, the basis on which the innate apprehension of the I grasps the I are the five aggregates, the body and mind, and nothing else. It does not do so, so this grasping does not grasp the I on the basis of any of the five aggregates individually nor on the basis of the body or mind individually. Okay? So this innate grasping doesn't just focus on one aggregate and say, I, that's me. Yeah. It has a global kind of feeling. Okay? So, um, Okay. It is on the global basis of the five aggregates as a group or the body and mind as a group that the innate apprehension of the I grasps the I as having always existed on its own 
not as a simple designation by conception on this basis. Okay? So, based on this global thing, this collection of the body and mind, the innate eye-grasping grasp eye. So it's not that the innate eye-grasping looks at the body and says, the body is me. And it doesn't look at the mind and say, the mind is me. But it's on the basis of this whole collection that it feels me. Okay? So this I, which is its object of apprehension, is the object of negation to be refuted. It must be ascertained not just by understanding someone else's explanation or by simple verbal images, but from within yourself palpably. This is the first key point, the key point of ascertaining the way the object of negation appears. Okay? So this feeling of a strong eye, you know, the one who just got criticized for something I didn't do, that eye, yeah, which is the object of that eye grasping, yeah, is, is associated with just the collection of the body and mind, not with one or the other aggregate. And so it appears to be somewhere mixed in with the body and mind, and yet somehow separate from it too. Okay, that's how they say it appears. So, you know, think about it sometime. I mean, uh, during the course of this week, I'm sure everything will not go as you like. Yeah, we can arrange that, but we don't have to. Usually, yeah, and you will be unhappy about something, and you will be complaining about something, you know, or somebody will say something that you find offensive, you know, I don't like that. Yeah, so take that chance when that happens. You don't like something, you're ticked off about something. Yeah, to just, you know, focus on that feeling of life and just one part of the mind kind of observe how it exists. Yeah. And it seems to be quite there and very independent. Yeah. I mean, it's really, really there. It doesn't feel like the eye is merely labeled. Uh-uh. The eye is there. And it's a force to be reckoned with. And a big force, because this I, is, everything in my whole world revolves around it. Everything. You know, the whole way I see the world is based on this I. And most important thing in my life is this I must be happy. And this I cannot suffer. And I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that happens, no matter what it entails. Yeah? Do you feel that inside yourself sometimes? Yeah? My 
So that thought of me, I mean, it governs our whole life. Yeah, because we think that the me is so real, and then based on how real it is, it's its happiness is most important. And anything that interferes with its happiness is like, gotta destroy it. Gotta fight against it. Yeah, so we wind up fighting against a lot of things. Because things get in the way of our happiness. And they can be big things, you know, like a mosquito biting you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or a dinosaur chasing you, uh, or a person you don't like chasing you, or criticizing you, or it could be, you know, a small thing of somebody just not treating you the way you think you should be treated. People not appreciating us as much as they should. Because yeah. after all, we're so worthy of other people's appreciation. Aren't we? Yeah, shouldn't they all appreciate us? Don't you think? I mean, this world is so fortunate to have me in it. That's the way we act. So that's the, the first key point, that's the object of negation. Regarding the second key point, ascertaining the range of possibilities, reflect as follows. Does the I that is apprehended tightly in the depths of my heart by the perception that thinks of the I in relation to the aggregate, and the sentence is that. <laughs> Does the I <laughs> Okay. Does the I that is apprehended tightly in the depths of my heart by the perception that thinks of the I Okay, does that I exist in relation to the five aggregates? Okay. Is it one with the aggregates or distinct from them? Okay. Because if the I, if we're examining here how the I exists, is the I the same thing as the aggregates or is it distinct from the aggregates? Okay. So, you know, if you have two things, they either have, you know, in the context of them being inherently existent, they have, because inherent existent things, remember, it means they exist without depending on anything else. So some, you know, if things are inherently existent, if you have two things, they have to be either exactly the same, or they have to be unrelated. Totally distinct, or totally the same. There's no other option, okay? So the second key point here is deciding 
uh, a third mode of existence other than these two, in other words, being one and the same and being totally different, is absolutely impossible. Any existent, whatever it is, must have either an aspect of unity or an aspect of multiplicity. In this way, draw the conclusion that there is absolutely no third possible mode of existence other than these two. Okay, now there's two more points, but they need some explanation. Maybe I'll pause here and see if there's any questions. Yeah. This last point, the reason for that we have to be exactly the same or completely distinct is because of the appearance to us is that the thing is uh, completely independent. And the reason they, there's only those two options is that if things inherently existed, it means that they are totally independent of other things. Mm -hmm. So if you have two things that are totally independent of everything else, either they have to be exactly the same thing, or they're totally independent of everything else. Those are the only two ways they can exist. Okay, so that's why. In, in the realm of things that have a dependent nature, you're, you're not restricted to things being either identical or totally unrelated. Because in the realm of dependent things, they can be dependent on each other. But here, we're looking at that inherently existent I that we think exists. And we're seeing if the I, in fact, exists that way. We're doing that first step, we're trying to see how it appears. And so we're actually trying to see how it appears to stand on its own so much. How it appears? How it appears to stand on its own so much. Yeah. So I mean, get that, generate that. We're trying to, to, to see how it appears. It, it's like if there's a thief in the house, yeah, you kind of have to hide out and wait for the thief to, you know, kind of wander around. And you have to look at the thief and know what the thief looks like if you're going to catch him and kick him out. If you just say there's a thief, but you don't know is he tall or short or green or purple, you know, you're not going to know how to catch him. Mm -hmm. How much of a certainty do we need to have with each point before we move to the next point? Um, it's good to run to, as we're getting familiar, to go through all the points and get a feeling for all of them. But really, after you've done that and you understand the four points well, then you really need to focus on each point individually and get to the bottom of it before going on to the next point. Because if you don't, especially with the first point, if you can't, you know, identify the way the inherently existent I appears, if you can't do that, then going on to the rest of it, you don't get any feeling from it at all. Okay.
So this this thing about uh, you know the inherently existent I and the, the, that feeling of it, it's like you know when you think me, you know I exist and this kind of feeling. If I don't exist, then what else does? You know, and if things don't exist as they appear to me, how else could they possibly exist? There's no other way. Yeah. You have to really see that that clearly. This whole concept of how small the mind that examines the feeling of I needs to be mm-hmm. is very helpful because when I try to do this, I jump on it so big that yeah. it just sort of hops. Right, it hides. It disappears. You know? yeah. like, Where did you go? You know, because I'm just so like, oh, yeah. I, yeah. And it hides, it'll hide in the body and mind, pretending to be one or the other of them, or, yeah. Yeah, so you have to really kind of catch it. And then the thing is, you know, the time to catch it is when we're most emotionally revved up, which is the time when we most forget to look for it. Okay, so let me just read the rest of it, and then we'll uh, we'll talk about we'll talk about it next week. But just to read it, and then you know, start thinking about it. Regarding the third key point, ascertaining the lack of inherent unity. If you imagine that the I thus apprehended is inherently one with the five aggregates. Since living beings have five aggregates, the I, too, would have to have five distinct continuums. You'd have five people. If the I was one, the five aggregates, should uh, too, would have to be one, partless, and so on, which poses many problems. Consequently, conclude that the I thus apprehended is not one and the same with the five aggregates. Moreover, if the I thus apprehended is established as one with the aggregates, as the five aggregates arise and disintegrate, so would the I established by the perception aware of it, standing on its own, have to uh, arise and disintegrate. If that were the case, would the I that arises and disintegrates be one with or distinct from its previous moment of existence and its subsequent moment? If you were to consider it to be one with them, then the I of the previous life, of the present life, and of the subsequent life, all three would be one and heartless. If they were distinct, Although, generally speaking, what is distinct is not necessarily unconnectedly distinct. Still, whatever is inherently distinct must be distinct and utterly unconnected. The eye of the previous, of the present, and of the subsequent lives would be utterly unconnected. This poses many problems. One would experience the results of karmas one had not created, karma created would go to waste, and so forth. 
Hence, the previous and subsequent moments of such an I are not inherently distinct. Therefore, conclude that the I is apprehended, the I as apprehended by that perception is not one with the aggregates. Okay. In addition, if the I thus apprehended were one with the aggregates, since they would be inherently one, they would have to be completely and utterly one. If that were the case, it would conflict with the I or self being the appropriator of the five aggregates, with the five aggregates being what is appropriated by the I or self, and so on. Therefore, conclude that the I thus apprehended is not one with the five aggregates. Regarding the fourth key point, ascertaining the lack of inherent plurality, although the I thus ascertained is not established as one with the five aggregates, if you think perhaps it is established as distinct from the five aggregates, just as once you have eliminated each of the four aggregates, the aggregate of form and so forth, there remains the aggregate of consciousness that can be recognized distinctly. Once you have eliminated each of the five aggregates, that of form and so forth, you should be able to identify distinctly an I thus apprehended, but that is not possible. Somebody in Tibetan, when they write paragraph you know, <laughs> sentences, Sometimes the paragraph, the sentence is actually a paragraph, so you get a translation like this. Okay. Consequently, conclude that the I thus apprehended is not established as distinct from the five aggregates. I'll just read to the end of this section. By analyzing the four key points, once you have ascertained that the I is apprehended, by the innate grasping that I does not exist, meditate on that ascertainment continually and one-pointedly, free of laxity and excitement. If the ascertainment weakens slightly, beginners should revert to an analysis of the four key points and induce the ascertainment of the lack of inherent existence. Those with higher faculties will analyze whether the I as it appears to innate grasping at I exists or not. On that basis, they can elicit the ascertainment of non-inherent existence in a way similar to the analysis of the four key points. At that point, the way to meditate on space-like concentration is to meditate one-pointedly on the combination of the two. From the angle of confirmation, the firm ascertainment of non-inherent existence, and from the angle of appearance, the ascertainment of emptiness, that is, the simple absence of the object of negation, inherent existence. Subsequent to space-like concentration, meditate on the illusion-like display of the eye and so forth, that is, of all phenomena. In addition, by the strong ascertainment of non-inherent existence in meditative absorption, subsequently train in inducing the appearance of a false and illusion-like display according to which all that manifests lacks inherent existence, though it appears. Got it? <laughs>
<laughs> okay, so this could take a little time to understand and, you know. So we'll go back to, the, we'll start with the third key point. But, you know, in the week, kind of maybe review this, remember, get familiar a little bit with the vocabulary, think about it a little bit. May the spiritual teachers who lead me on the sacred path and all spiritual friends who practice it have long life. May I pacify completely all outer and inner hindrances. Grant such inspiration, I pray. May the lives of the venerable spiritual mentors be stable, and their virtuous actions spread in the ten directions. May the light of Lohsan's teachings dispel in the darkness of the beings in the three worlds always increase. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their sufferings. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forevermore. In the snowy mountain pure land, you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful tensing at such energy, may you stay until samsara ends. May the deeds of explaining and practicing the Dharma Done by groups supporting the teachings and their upholders, who spread the view of dependent arising and nonviolent actions in the ten directions, and especially at Shravasti Abbey in the West. Lord,